He is Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Today we look at a passage in Ephesians 5 that will touch all of our consciences because it talks about sin and some specific sins. What is sin? Well, the Shorter Catechism says sin is any transgression of or want of conformity to the law of God. What does that mean? It means breaking God's law. It's like crime against God. 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness, breaking God's law. And just like there are many kinds of crimes, felonies, misdemeanors, there are many, many kinds of sins. And this gives us a list of six, but there's a lot more than that in the Bible. Romans 1 lists about 20 of them, and many others in the Bible. We find examples in the Bible of murder, adultery, theft, racism, and other such sins. We don't even have to look in the Bible. All we have to do is look around and look within and look in the mirror. Many kinds. Theologians talk about two divisions. There's sins of commission, means when we commit a sin that we shouldn't. The Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. And so we do what we shouldn't do. And there's sins of omission when we don't do what we should do. Jesus said the most important commandment is to love God. And does it occur to you that when we don't love God, that is a sin? Another division of sins is sins of thought, word, and deed. Thought where, that's where sin begins, and even if it doesn't come out of our mouth or do something with our hands, it's still sin in the heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So sometimes it comes vomiting out with bad words, lies, swearing, and then sometimes it even goes further when we do something with our body, thought, word, and deed, all of it's sin. Then there are new sins that we've never committed before. There are some sins little children are not capable of committing, but adults can. And then there are old sins that we have done over and over and over again many times, and in some cultures, certain sins are very rampant and other sins are relatively rare, but they're all wrong. You may say, well, are some sins worse than others? Yes. You remember when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate and Pilate was beginning to feel a little guilty because he knew Jesus was innocent and he was about to throw him to the dogs. And Jesus said something profound. He said, he that gave me to you is guilty of a greater sin. I was thinking of Judas. But of course, Pontius Pilate was also guilty. My point is, some sins are worse than others. Jesus said that when we hate someone in our heart, that's like murder. But even if we haven't killed anybody with our hand, we've already done the deed in thought. So some things are worse. A sin of thought is not as bad as a sin of word or of deed, but my point is they're all wrong. There are no misdemeanor sins. They're all felonies that deserve eternal punishment in hell. But... There is good news. 
For all of these sins we'll look at this morning and any other sin that you can think of, there is forgiveness. I've had people say, God can't forgive even me. I remember one woman was virtually hysterical telling me some of the terrible sins that she had said. Sinned, and I said, there's still hope. And I smiled and said, all those sins can be erased. Keep that in mind as we look at this section this morning in Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 7. Let me read them first. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. This is a sordid list, and it begins with fornication. Now, the Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek, and so the Greek word there is pornea, from which we get pornography, fornication, other ones. It's a general word that simply means sexual immorality. Any sex outside of marriage comes under this heading. It's like in the seventh of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. But under that category... Many other sexual sins. Anything outside of marriage is wrong. Unfortunately, some people even bring sexual immorality into their marriage. And so that would also be condemned. You know, it's a judgment upon a society like the United States when this is becoming more and more commonplace, more and more blatant. It's in the media. It's on television. It's being glorified. Things that would have been unheard of just one generation ago are now glorified and excused even in highest places. And it's getting worse. I'm not a prophet, but I predict that one day, all laws concerning sexual behavior in all 50 states will be struck down. Everything will be legal and and will be glorified. God help us. It's just like years ago, no one would have ever dreamed of Legalization and glorification of same-sex marriage, it's common. Transgenderism, and it is going to get worse, folks. So it all comes under this category of fornication. And the next one, number two, it says all uncleanness, which probably refers to the grossest forms of immorality, because these two words are often joined together in Scripture. In other words, sexual immorality is wrong, but some kinds are degrading, depraved, or just downright filthy. And there's an old word for it. I can't remember the last time I heard it used. Perversion. The kind that most people have never even heard of, but it goes on. Romans 1 describes it as unnatural. Now this isn't saying that all sex is dirty. No, God created it. I remember talking to a man many years ago that thought he knew about the Bible, and he said, I know what original sin was that Adam and Eve first committed. And I said, what was it? And he said, sex. And I said, no, it wasn't. God created sex and told them to have sex and have children. 
So the Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 13 that sex within marriage is good. It says, let, let the marriage bed be undefiled. But Romans 1 says there are certain sexual things that are unnatural. You see, there are degrees of sexual immorality, and some becomes what this calls uncleanness, perversion, such as LGBTQ, etc. I heard recently that it's all the way up to 47 and multiplying. But it starts with homosexuality that the Bible calls Perversion, filthiness, no excuse for it. And that's into this second character. It's beyond just simply adultery and fornication. It is filthiness and perversion beyond imagination. The Bible says certain people do things that they glory in their shame. Things that they should be ashamed of. They're taking pride in. They're even flaunting it in parades, even in Springfield, Illinois, would have been unheard of before. God is taking off the restraints. It's unrestrained hedonism, far beyond when I was a teenager in the sexual revolution of the 60s, which was a tremendous degradation and a step down, but it's gone even further since then. But an individual, it starts when they first do something, they feel dirty and a defiled conscience, but gradually they do it more and they become hardened. And as it says in the Bible, they do not know how to blush. They glory in what they should be ashamed of. It's uncleanness. But the good news is God can forgive all uncleanness. Even this. That people feel that they feel dirty and they wash their hands and take showers five times a day and it just doesn't work. But God can forgive all sins, even this. This is not the unforgivable sin. After all, all sin is unclean and there are some that are more unclean than others. But nothing is more unclean than the purity of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. It says in 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Isaiah 1.18 says, come, let us reason together. Even though your sins are blood red like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, white as wool. Look at sin number three. It says covetousness or greed. That's the tenth of the Ten Commandments. Now, a moral person might say, yeah, fornication, uncleanliness, perversion, that's terrible sin. And they might say, well, how did covetousness get in here? How can that be a sin? You see, this is almost like an unrecognizable sin, but God says it is. It's in the Ten Commandments. It only seems innocent, but it really is sinful in God's sight. In Romans 7, Paul says something very interesting about this. Sin in this commandment. Remember the Apostle Paul, before he became a preacher, before he became a Christian, he was a very self-righteous Pharisee rabbi. Well-educated, went to the temple, to the synagogue, knew Hebrew, Greek, probably knew Latin because he was a Roman citizen. Very self-righteous. And he'd look at the Ten Commandments and says, don't worship idols. He said, I'm good on that one. I never take God's name in vain. Never commit immorality. I've never stolen. I keep the Lord's 
uh, day, and he's, he was so proud of that until he came to number 10. And in Romans 7, 7, it says, he says, that commandment, do not covet, it said it slew him. It was like a sword in his heart. He said, I have been a coveter my whole life. How? There's a clue to that in one of the Gospels. It said the Pharisees were lovers of money. And they were proud. They wanted all that. And it was all self-centered. Comes under the heading of covetousness. Later, it says that it's comparable to idolatry. When you're putting something as number one in your life, you want it, you got to have it. And once you got it, it becomes your idol. Covetousness means wanting something that doesn't belong to you. And just like hatred in the heart can produce murder in the hand, covetousness in the heart is the root of theft. A person wants something, so he steals it, unless he's restrained. Covetousness is promoted by television, movies, ads and magazines, the internet, catalogs, even at Christmas. Or something that seems just as innocent as strolling the mall, looking in the windows. And that often produces covetousness. You see something, a woman sees a beautiful gown, a man sees something in the hardware, and he says, I've got to have that. Boy, if I could have that, I'd really be happy. I want it, I want it. That's covetousness. The Bible says, thou shalt not covet, look at the Ten Commandments. Number 10 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or husband or house. Or even mentions animals and servants and then it concludes, or anything that belongs to anybody else. You begin to feel like the Apostle Paul, it hits you in the heart. Even if you've not done the first two, fornication and uncleanness, we've all coveted. What's the opposite of that? Bible says be content with what you have and be thankful. But we always want more and more. And that wanting more and more, the Bible says, is idolatrous covetousness. God says here, let it not be named among you. He's addressing Christians. You see, these sins and all sins are very common among unbelievers. But a Christian has a change in his life so that Sin is an exception to his life. And Paul says, let this not be named among you. It's it's not fitting for you. But sometimes we do commit these sins, even as Christians. Verse 12 goes on to say, there are certain sins like this that we shouldn't even talk about. That is, talk about in detail. That's why he just uses the general term for fornication. He doesn't describe what it is or uncleanness. He doesn't go into the detail, nor should we. And I won't in this sermon. Why? Because even talking about these sins in undue detail can stir up sin in us. It can be a a form of temptation. Think about that. Parents need to instruct their children, but not go into certain details. That's why the Bible does not give us certain details. It gives generalities. For example, when it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't tell you specifically what they did. It just said they committed sodomy and immorality and perversion. And yet, TV, movies, etc. do go into such details. It's terrible. They're doing the devil's work. Even in that area back in number two there about uncleanness, not just in the parades, 
Even in the public schools with little children, they're going into detail. God help us. That's lighting the stick of dynamite of God's judgment. When you Remember Jesus said, woe to be to anybody that leads a little child astray. Think of the judgment upon those teachers and school administrators that are teaching perversion to little children. God help them. Another thing why it should not be named and talked about in detail is that once we've heard it or seen certain things, it's hard to get it out of our memory. Some of us that are older, we can still remember dirty jokes from 50 years ago. Or you saw something and it keeps coming into your mind. That's why you want to stop it, seeing it or hearing it. And it says, don't even talk about these things in detail. That's how sin is. It continues, verse 4. Sin number four, he says, filthiness. Now, that's the same as uncleanness in the previous verse. word there means it's indecent, it's dirty, it's defiling. And that's not just referring to sexual immorality. It would come under the category of obscenity. The sort of things that should be illegal. It used to be illegal. Every police department used to have a vice squad. I can't remember the last time I heard about certain crimes being called vice, like prostitution and other certain things. Vice is a sin against yourself. Gambling is a vice. Sexual immorality and many other things. It's filthy. And this describes the unrestrained hedonism of unbelievers that have thrown off all restraint. They're showing simply what they are by nature. 2 Peter 2 describes them as like a pig as opposed to a lamb. Now, I used to hunt wild hogs back in Texas, and I've seen what they do. They wallow around, around not only in the mud, but in absolute filth. They feel at home at that. And you've heard this story that a pig farmer can take a pig out of the pig pen, hose it down, scrub it down, put a little ribbon on top of its head and spray perfume, let it out, and it'll go right back to the filth. filth. Why? It's his nature. And that's the nature of unbelieving sinners, especially when God takes the restraints off. In contrast, a Christian becomes a lamb. He might fall into the mud, but a lamb doesn't roll around in the mud, wants to get out. A Christian falls into sins, even such as these, and he doesn't feel at home. He says, I feel guilty. Lord, wash me. I'm sorry I did this. Are you a pig or are you a lamb? And there's nothing in between. A pig loves filthiness. But again, God can forgive even this filthy sin. Look at sin number five, foolish talking. In other words, just rambling about nonsense or making fun of someone. Or have you ever heard the babblings of someone when he's absolutely drunk and crawling around on the ground Talking absolute nonsense. He's out of control. That's what is condemned here. And it's comparable to number six, coarse jesting. Or what we would call dirty jokes. Rampant on TV. And it's hard to forget them once you've heard them. And this is what's very common. I don't watch comedians on television. I haven't for many years because I know what they're going to do. They go for the quick laugh with a dirty joke or to make fun of somebody. Remember an interview many, many years ago with one of the most famous comedians. Some, anybody remember Red Skelton? 
And when he had retired, they interviewed him. He had been on television, his weekly show on Tuesday nights for 18 years. And they said, what do you think of the modern comedians? And Red got serious. He said, they don't know how to tell a clean joke. I always tell a clean joke. I never make fun of someone, and it's always clean. doesn't have to be censored. He says, they don't know how to tell a clean joke anymore. And that was many years ago. So don't do this kind of joking and don't listen to them. Don't watch it on television. Walk away if someone begins to tell something like this when you're at work and you begin to hear it, just kind of walk away from it. Now, just like not all sex is perversion and filthy, not all jokes are like this. There's nothing wrong with a clean joke, a pun, or you know, a little funny story with a punchline. But be careful. Know where to draw the line lest it becomes what's called coarse jesting. And then God says, these are not fitting, and that applies to all these other sins. He says, they're not fitting, but rather give thanks. These and all sins are not appropriate for Christians. Kind of like mama that says, that's not appropriate behavior, young lady. That's what our Heavenly Father says to us. That sin of thought, word, or deed, that's not appropriate for you. You're a child of God. Act like it. Imitate Jesus. These sins are not fitting. But notice he gives the opposite alternative. Instead of immorality, Bible encourages chastity. And instead of bad language, it says here, instead giving of thanks, good language. And as I said, Jesus once said, all of our sins come from within. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he gives another list of sins. He says, out of the heart comes murders, fornications, thefts, in this sordid list. So you might clean your mouth up and you might commit sins without using your body, but it's still deep within. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's where we have to start. It gets more serious. Look at verse 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Those that regularly do these things as a course of life without repentance will not go to heaven unless they repent and their lives are changed. This does not mean that everybody that does not do these goes to heaven because there are some people who say, I've, I've never broken these, this, that, and the other commandments. They've, come, they've broken other commandments. Nor does it mean that if a Christian even commits one of these, he loses his salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. Nor does it mean that if you've even sinned once, you can never get saved. No, this is not saying that here. Because unfortunately, sometimes Christians do slip and commit certain heinous sins. Think of King David, who's called a man after God's own heart. I don't think I've ever met any Christian that could measure up to David. Just read the Psalms that he wrote. But he also committed adultery and murder, and then he covered it up by lying to the nations. So my point is, a Christian can slip and stumble like that lamb falling in the mud. David eventually got out of that. This is talking about something else. This is talking about that hog that loves to wallow in it, unrestrained hedonism, even boasts about it. Never feels guilty, does not repent. It characterizes his way of life. Let me show you the parallel to this. So, 
put your hand here and turn back a few chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where God says something very similar. And I remember the Corinthian Christians had once been Corinthian non-Christians who were very sordid and they had no restraints. It was, it was very, very wicked. And so Paul says something to them. Chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Here's the list again. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. This is their lifestyle. Without restraint, without repentance. And he says they will not go to heaven if they die in that state. Ah, but look at the next verse. Let's Don't forget that. And such were some of you. It wasn't hopeless for them. In this Corinthian church, there were people that had been prostitutes, adulterers, murderers, thieves, everything that was forbidden by the word of God, but God changed them. It says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So back to Ephesians, when we look at these sort of terrible sins, we should not say, well, I'm above that. Mm -mm. I say this in my book. None of us as Christians should ever say, well, there's, I, I know I've got my pet sins, but there are some sins I would never do. What does Paul say? Do not be deceived. The great Spurgeon said, if God took the restraints off, there is no sin that you would not commit, of course, except the unpardonable sin. Look at David. Pray for God to keep the restraints on you and to protect you from temptation because we still have that sin lurking around in our hearts. But again, there's the contrast with the unbelievers. First, they're the out-and-out unbelievers. They don't even pretend to be Christians. They brag about their sins. But then there are also false Christians whose lifestyle is no different than the out-and-out unbeliever. No difference in lifestyle. The only difference is they say, well, I got born again. I, I invited Jesus into my heart when I was in Sunday school as a little child. And you say, do you go to church? No. Do you read your Bible? No. Do you love God? No. And they may even say, I'm an atheist. What else? Well, I break crimes and I'm LGBT and all these other things. But I'm still saved. No, they are not. That's the point of these verses. Such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me balance that with another biblical principle. Christians do struggle with habitual sins. We call them besetting sins. It might be a man that can't control his temper a lot. Or lustful thoughts or stealing things. Those are besetting sins. They do them and it varies from person to person. They do it and then they repent. They say, I just can't shake this. We all have besetting sins. Yours might be different than the one sitting next to you, but that's a different thing than what these verses are talking about. Christians do these and then they repent. Sometimes when a person becomes a Christian, God takes away certain sins that characterized him before, like a person that's always cursing and now becomes a Christian and 10 years later he says, you know, I haven't cursed since the day I got saved. Huh, God really did change me. 
Some of you can think of certain things that God just took right out of you the moment you became a Christian. Ah, but sometimes God leaves certain sins there for you to struggle with. And you cry out, Lord, deliver me from this. Deliver me from this. You give in. You repent. Lord, deliver. And sometimes God says, you've struggled long enough. I'm going to take that out of you. And you get victory in that area. And then you struggle in another area. Read Romans 7 about this, this daily struggle. But my point is to a Christian, sin is an exception even when he repeats certain things and keeps repenting. But this is talking about a person that doesn't keep repenting. He enjoys this. This characterizes his lifestyle inside and out. Boy, when we read these verses, isn't this a call for us to examine our hearts and our lives. Then Paul says, don't be deceived about this. Verse 6, let no one deceive you. In other words, don't fall for anybody's lies that gives you a different judgment than God does. He says, don't let anybody deceive you with evil, with empty words. For because of these things, the sins he just mentioned, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now this is strong medicine, folks. This cuts to the heart to a very popular error that I just mentioned in passing. The idea that you can become a Christian and there's no change whatsoever in your heart or your life. Sometimes it's called the carnal Christian idea. They say, well, there's some spiritual Christians. They have spiritual fruit and they're following Jesus. But they're these other ones, they're, they're saved. They'll never lose it. But there's no change. In fact, they may be worse than what they were before. But they're still saved. They are not. They are not carnal Christians. They're carnal non-Christians. Jesus said there are two types of trees. One has good fruit. One has bad fruit. So you can't have a good tree bearing bad fruit or vice versa. The carnal Christian era says you can be permanently backslidden. Regularly practice even the grossest of all sins without ever repenting. And without ever doing or thinking any good. But they say he's supposedly a Christian. Absolutely not. Have they never read the verses we're looking at this morning? That theory is a lie and a deception, but that's why he says, don't let anybody deceive you. Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see God. In other words, you will never make it to heaven if you're not walking that path of holiness. Now, he's not saying walking the path of holiness gets you saved. It's the evidence you have been saved. No evidence, no salvation. It says don't be deceived. Not just by the culture around you or the lying of your own heart, but don't be deceived by the great deceiver, Satan. He is the tempter, the Bible says. He is also the deceiver. He deceived Eve. Remember? It says she, she fell for his lies. He said, look at this fruit. It, it, it'll taste good. It'll make you wise. You'll become a goddess. Kind of like Wicca, you'll be a goddess. And she was naive and fell for it. I didn't get Adam off the hook. He went into sin with his eyes wide open. But don't be deceived by the devil. God says, because of these things and other such sins, the wrath of God is coming. And I'm going to go into that more in my next message where it says the wrath of God. The point is sin brings judgment because it insults God's holiness which produces wrath 
And that's the punishment we will face unless we repent and are forgiven before we die. There are two very important biblical principles. God is holy. Absolutely pure. Without even a slight shadow of unholiness. And the second point is we are unholy. We're as sinful as God is holy. They're opposites. They cannot harmonize. Sin is breaking God's holy law. That's why we're described here, look at the verse, sons of disobedience. That's a Hebrew way of saying this characterizes your heart and your life, disobedience to God. There are really only two types of people in the world, Christians and non-Christians. No third option, you can't be both. Let me show you one more parallel passage. Before we conclude, turn to 1 John chapter 3. Told you this is strong medicine, but it's good for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, go back to verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he, God, is pure. Starting in verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Now stop there. He doesn't mean if you're in Jesus, you're you're a Christian. doesn't mean you never sin. What he means is you're not always sinning. Whoever always sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. The word practice means as a way of life, like practicing on the piano for two hours a day. Practice makes perfect. You practice one thing or another. You practice righteousness or unrighteousness. He that practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. But he that regularly sins, verse 8, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God, that is born again, you've been saved. He does not sin. Doesn't mean you've ne- you never sin. You do not practice sin as a way of life, inside and out. Because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin. In other words, he cannot regularly keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of God. Now here's the clincher, verse 10. Boy, this steps on our toes with both feet. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. That can be translated, it's obvious, the difference between them. What's the obvious difference? That's what we've been preaching on this morning. A person that's saved lives a certain lifestyle inside and out where sin is the exception. And when he sins, he repents. The other side are the children of the devil. They have that unrighteous lifestyle, a, a, a dirty heart, dirty mouth. Everything about them is sin. There's a noticeable difference. It says it's obvious. Can you think of people you know and you say, it's so obvious that person is a Christian. And it's so obvious that person isn't. What do you see in the mirror? Which of these two apply to you? Are you a son and a daughter of God Almighty or are you a son and daughter of the devil? If you're a Christian, you generally have a lifestyle and desires of the heart that imitate Jesus and you love him. 
But the other one, you're a slave of the devil. It concludes in verse 7 back in Ephesians, Therefore do not be partakers of them. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be partakers of another man's sin. Don't fall into their temptations. Temptations can be very persuasive and deceptive, especially for young people where your friends will say, well, come on, do this drugs, do this immorality. Be cool. Go with the flow. Go with the herd. God says swim against the tide. If they say everybody's doing it, have the courage to say, not me. Just say no. Hard as it will be. Pray to the Lord. Deliver us from temptation. Lead us not to temptation. Lead us from evil. Temptation's all around us, but don't forget temptation's also from within us. Now this, this is strong words from Ephesians chapter 5. I think it can fix all of us. If not of immorality, at least of covetousness and bad language and bad thoughts. That can make us uncomfortable. It should drive us to God and to be vigilant. But I will end on that same note of hope. There's still forgiveness for these and of all other sins. Even of these sordid sins of perversity and filthiness. And we have good examples in the life of Jesus. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and one of those men that was crucified with him, Luke says he was a thief. The other gospels say he was an assassin. He was a murderer. Well, we'd call a terrorist. You do a public opinion poll, most people with terrorists are the worst of the worst. They're the scum above the scum. That man believed and repented and was saved. That terrorist, that murderer. And then in Luke 7, there's that woman that was a prostitute. And if you know anything about prostitution, they not only do immorality, they do perversion for years with hundreds of men and women. Filthiness. And yet this woman was forgiven And she comes to Jesus and weeps on his feet, dries their feet with her hair because she loved him. And Jesus said, I forgive you all of your sins. Think of that man and think of that woman. Nobody is beyond the scope of God's grace to forgive them. No matter what they've said. Now, put this into practice, not in your life, but when you meet someone, don't ever say, there's no hope for that man or for that woman. There most certainly is. God saved you, didn't he? And there's about that much difference between any of us and any of them. Because we're born sinners. And it's only by the grace of God that we have become Christians. And that's our lesson from Ephesians 5. Let's pray. Father, as strong as these thunderbolts are on our conscience, the testimony of your word and the promise of your forgiveness is every bit as strong. Forgive us our sins because of Jesus. Help us to resist temptation. Help us not to repeat certain sins. Give us daily repentance. And Lord, thank you that you have washed us and changed us because of Jesus. And we remember him as we eat and drink at communion because it's only because of Jesus that we can be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.